On that light note, let me pray for us and regather our center. If you're the one that's responsible for everything that is in our midst, within our view, if you're the one responsible for our very breath and life, if you're the one who is even the master over death, then surely you're worthy of our attention and of finding a few words that get to the center of that just for a few minutes. And therefore, I beg your mercies upon my heart and my mouth and upon their ears and upon us all that we might take something from these few moments that would allow us to see your beauty all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you go downtown Asheville or downtown Hendersonville or Flower, wherever you go, and you ask five different people this question, what is the meaning of life? What, why are you here? What is your purpose? They will give you all sorts of answers all over the map. And some of those answers will be funny, and some of those answers will be poignant, and some of them will probably be cynical, right? Because they think that's just a sort of a laughable question, or they've seen enough of life to think there is no knowing. Um, one way you might listen is uh, the way Calvin and Hobbes put it a long time ago. Uh, Calvin asks Hobbes, uh, why do you suppose we're here? Well, because we walked here. No, no, I mean, uh, here on earth. And he says, because earth can support life. No, I mean, why are we anywhere? Why do we exist? Because we were born? Forget it. I will. Thank you. (laughs) The question has been asked so often that we sort of roll our eyes at the mention of it. And yet, friends, if we are honest with ourselves, you can't escape that question. And it will haunt you until you have an answer for it. And all of us do, whether we're aware of that answer or not. You have a reason that you operate on for why you're here and what your purpose is, even if you can't even express it. But we've all got an answer. And we all need one, because we all need a purpose. Because if you don't know what your purpose is, you can drift in all sorts of ways and all sorts of sinister things can creep into your life and influence you in all sorts of myriad ways. Without that answer to that question, you will flail. Or you will find yourself wrapped around so many poles, you don't know what to do about it. I want to show you a clip to kind of capture the importance of having a sense of where purpose comes from, that if you don't have it, other stuff can drift in. This is a scene from a movie that came out about 30 years ago called Never Cry Wolf. Anybody ever see it? It, It's it's this movie um, about a researcher that is commissioned by the Canadian government to go out into the tundra of Canada to figure out what is decimating the caribou population. The working hypothesis at the time is that the wolf population has come in and started to render the caribou population uh, decimated. And he's there to find out if that's the case. And he can't really talk about it because it's kind of under a cover of darkness thing and it's uh, government funded. But here in this scene, he is being flown out into the tundra where he's going to spend the next several months tracking wolves, tracking caribou. And he's being flown out by a bush pilot named Rosie. And here in this exchange between Rosie and the researcher named Tyler, Rosie's trying to kind of sniff around why he's doing what he's doing. But in the course of their conversation, something comes out, a, a theme comes out about what appears to be sort of a default position where people land when it comes to seeking out their purpose. Listen to this. Tell me, Tyler. 
What's in the valley of the Blackstone? What is it, manganese? Can't be oil. Is it gold? It's kind of hard to say. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're a smart man, Tyler. Keep your own counsel. We're all of us prospectors up here, eh, Tyler? <laughs> Scratching for that... for that one crack in the ground. We'll never have to scratch again. I'll let you know a little secret, Tyler. The gold's not in the ground. Gold's not anywhere up here. The real gold is south of 60. Sitting in living rooms. Stuck facing the boob tube. Bored to death. Bored to death, Tyler. I won't tell you if it lands. Like no other time in human history has so many people been tempted with, if not afflicted by, boredom. Because they've sought to give their full attention to any number of things that might keep their attention for a while, but it's not enough. And all they can do is keep giving their attention to this or that thing that might be really interesting for a while, but it's not purpose. It's just a way of spending the time. And therefore, boredom is epidemic. And this person's solution to that is adventure. Even adventure of the kind where the prop falls apart when you're above the tundra. And that's cool in its own way. And you kind of respect somebody that lives on the edge like that. But if we're saying that the only cure to boredom is to live like that, that sort of edgy, harrowing moment, well then, you know, that excludes a lot of people. Not many of us can be bush pilots in the Canadian tundra. Some of us got to take care of kids. Some of us got to teach school. Some of us got to take care of spouses or parents who are just sick. And so if you think the only cure to boredom is to live on the edge like that, then that's like, okay, but good luck. And yet all of us need purpose because otherwise we're going to drift into all sorts of awful things, including boredom, probably most of all. So what's our purpose? We've just finished listening to the introductory statements to the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And so we are now wandering out into the wider waters of the Sermon on the Mount proper that Jesus uttered. And right off the bat, he is here to tell you and to tell me something about our purpose if we're here to follow him. Because without purpose, 
You're going to be bored. And though the purpose that he is offering to us has its own form of adventure, it is not necessarily the kind of adventure where you're risking death every day. And so in four verses, we're going to hear our purpose most clearly stated, and we're going to learn three things about that purpose. The outline of that purpose, the challenges to that purpose, and the strength for that purpose. The outline of it, the challenges to it, the strength for it. If you're able to stand, we're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. If you would stand. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and then hide it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to everybody in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the purposeful word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Everybody needs a purpose. Or we'll drift into all sorts of things, including boredom. And Jesus knows that. And he's here right off the bat to explain to us what is our purpose and the outline of it. And I think you might say that our purpose is to be a presence. Our purpose is to be a presence. If you are born, if you exist, you have existence because you're alive. And if you're a human, you have a nature and therefore you have an essence, existence, essence. But if you're in Jesus, he would say that by virtue of your existence and your essence of being born in the image of God, then you have a purpose. And that purpose is to be a presence. And by me appealing to the word presence, I'm suggesting that your existence is for the sake of something beyond yourself. A lot of people will say they're here for number one. Boom. Jesus would say, I humbly suggest an alternative. You're here to be a presence for something and someone else. That's the nature of being a presence. And the reason I get that is from something that Jesus already has said in other places. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. It's his nature. It's what he came to do. And elsewhere he says, a servant is not greater than his master. So if the master goes and serves, guess what? So too the servant. We just see from his life that we understand why he would say that our purpose is to be a presence. But just in this passage, you heard it. The two things that he tells us who we are, he appeals to two metaphors to explain to us that purpose. Both of which have this in common. They exist, but their very nature is to exist for something outside of themselves. Without which, there's no point to their existence. So we're going to look at this purpose which is a presence from a few angles. First of all, from the quality of that presence. What is it like? What does it mean to have this purpose, which is a presence? And that quality is, first of all, he says, like salt. You are the salt of the earth. That's your presence, which is your purpose. And the first thing you've got to ask is, why did he pick salt? 
You mean that stuff I have on my table, the stuff I put on the green beans, that, the Morton stuff, the, the, the Himalayan pink salt stuff, really? Why something so pedestrian? Because in Jesus' day, it's not pedestrian. It's not small. Um, people in first century Palestine would be mortified at what my wife did on one of the first dates we ever went on. We're at a restaurant. And she showed me one of her myriad skills, which was to take the salt shaker at the restaurant and dump a bunch of salt on the table and then balance the corner of the salt shaker on the salt. And I was mesmerized. And I said to myself, you were in youth ministry, weren't you? Among her myriad talents, that was the first of many that I came to learn of. And yet, if you're in a first century person in Palestine, you're going, what are you doing? Salt is not table salt. It's not ordinary. And then you know why it's true? Because without salt in that day, you're dead. There's no refrigeration in the first century. There is no icebox. And you still got to eat meat. And just like your grandmother did, what they do with the meat so that it wouldn't spoil within four days so that you're dead with trichinosis in your meat. You put salt in it to draw out the moisture to prevent the bacteria from forming so that you had meat a little later. Without it, you're dead. Salt's big. Salt's not just table salt. And that's why you will find salt, if you read the Old Testament, in a bunch of places, in very sacred moments. Sometimes when people would make covenants with each other, they would make it in a, quote, covenant of salt. To give salt to one another was an exchange of fidelity. It was an exchange of promise that I will keep my word. And you would dip your thumb on your lip and you would dip it in the salt and you would put it on their tongue and say, I am in this because salt is precious to us both. And you go to the temple worship and sometimes what would you do? You would offer sacrifices of what? Of meat, of lamb, of grain? Yeah, but also of salt. So when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, please don't think he was saying you're the Mortons of the earth. It's something deeper. It's something richer. And salt is many things in that day, just as salt is many things in our day. But one thing we can be sure that Jesus might have meant when he said to us all, you are the salt of the earth, is that salt is a preservative. So much in this life, if not everything in this life, is heading towards dissolution and dissipation and and distortion. And unless you intervene in this life, unless you intervene in those situations, it will drift. And salt is a preservative. And as those who follow him, you're to be a preservative in this world. And if you want to just look at it from several, you know, simple examples. I I heard a story yesterday coming out of Virginia. And and Lord knows Virginia needs some good news these days. But there's this Baptist church in Alexandria called Alfred Street Baptist Church. And every January, the pastor calls upon the congregation to fast from all sorts of things that they might ordinarily do that cost money. Um, alcohol, candy, uh, discretionary spending, uh, going out to eat, whatever it might be. Just for a month, everybody fast in that direction. And let's pool the resources that we saved by virtue of what we devoted ourselves away from. And at the end of that month, they had $100,000. And just up the street is Howard University with a bunch of students who are about to graduate with a ton of student debt. And so this church, by virtue of their fasting, gave 100000 bucks to a bunch of these students who are about to graduate with that financial burden upon their back. And now they're free of it. Because they just wanted to preserve this few folks from having to go out into the wider world and prevent them from being able to flourish and get busy with life rather than get busy paying off debt. 
from a totally different angle. Uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers NFL coach Bruce Arians just signed to a four-year contract like Inc. last month, right? He tweets out one new policy that he's enacted with his staff. And this is the policy with his coaching staff. He says, if I ever hear that you missed one of your kids' recitals or their games because of work, I will fire you on the spot. You're done. You can make up the extra time at other times at work. But if your kid's got a recital or they got a game, you go to that. You don't come to work. Otherwise, I don't need you on my staff. Why? He's out to preserve what the relationships that he has between parents and their kids. Story I just hear this morning comes out of Beaumont, Texas, about an hour from where I grew up. The woman's name is Belinda George. She's the principal of Homer Drive Elementary in Beaumont. She's working with kids who are very economically disadvantaged, who can't afford books, who probably don't have parents that can afford or have the time or the energy to read to them at night. They may themselves not be able to read. And so every Tuesday night, she goes on Facebook Live, and it's called Tucked In Tuesdays. She gets on Facebook Live, and she reads a book to any kid that will listen. And sometimes 2,000 kids from across the country are Showing up just to listen because she wants those kids to value literacy. She wants those kids to understand reading. And it's as simple as pushing click. She's being salt. She's out to preserve something that would ordinarily drift to another direction. You can come up with a thousand ways in which you can imagine acting as a preservative agent in this world. That's what salt does. It's a preservative. And it's not just a preservative. What do we, why do we put salt on stuff? Because it brings out the vitality of what is kind of more subtle within it. We kind of dig that taste. We're made to enjoy it. We love that. That's what vitality does. That's what salt can do. And I think that Jesus might have had in mind that us for us also in thinking about our purpose. That we're to be a presence that brings out the vitality that might have gotten lost in the shuffle. Let me give you an example. Words are powerful things. Just single words It's amazing how they connote meaning or they come through development. But when you put words in sentences and paragraphs and stories, they take on a different character that is more than the sum of its parts. If you will just pick up any copy of Alexander Hamilton's The Federalist Papers that he and, and John Jay and others wrote, if you'll just read Federalist number one, you will be amazed at the way English language can be used in a way not just to convey meaning, but to communicate something of an art artistic value, which is what inspires somebody like Lin-Manuel Miranda to come up with this musical where he puts something as impenetrable as economic theory into hip-hop music. Really? Yeah, he really. That you just throw words together into paragraphs and it's beautiful and you throw it into hip-hop rhythm and rhyme all together and you've got art. And you're bringing out the vitality that would otherwise be lost if you're not noticing it. That's what salt does. If you've heard about this organization in Paraguay, this man who lives near what is a landfill that a lot of kids just live on. They live in hovels on landfills. And he was seeing them drift into dissolution. And he had an idea. He said, what if I form a band? And so there's this organization, this symphony called, um, let's see, where's it called? Orquestra de Instrumentos Reciclados de Quetora. These kids, they go out and they go through the, the landfills and they pick up stuff that might be able to be made in instruments. And they made a whole symphony of instruments made out of refuse. 
And he forms a band. And now this symphony has gone all over the world playing their stuff. People playing violins out of cereal boxes. Bringing that which is trash and bringing vitality at what thought would have no mother, any other use. That's, that's being salt. And we haven't even talked about what it means to be light. Salt is a perverted. Salt is what brings out vitality. But, but Jesus says also that you're the light of the world. You're a beacon in the world if you're in him. That's your purpose. That's your presence. What could he mean? Think about what is no longer much in use in, in our world except as, as museum pieces. But what are lighthouses? You go out to OBX and you see lighthouses, right? You go to the coast, you see lighthouses. And what did they do? They threw the light on where there was danger. And they threw the light on where there was a path out of that danger. That's what lighthouses did. And if you listen to the light, and if you look to the light, you would avoid danger. That's what light does. That's what light is for. Light does all sorts of things to bring attention to that which is in us and around us that will lead us to our own destruction. And so if you will just listen very carefully for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to throw light and throw shade on what is what our impulses and biases and prejudices and ignorance that if we follow, it will be to the world's degradation. A couple of years ago, you may remember of this uh, commercial. Um, it was actually put out by a travel agency and they gathered about 50 people from all sorts of backgrounds and they gave them a DNA test. But before they gave them the results of the DNA test, they interviewed everybody in the panel each one by one. And each interview, they were asking about their background and their ethnicity. And as they would speak about their background, they would speak very honestly and openly and reverently about their own ethnicity. But they even got so candid as to, at times, start to speak pejoratively of other ethnicities they had a problem with. They would kind of say, yeah, I don't think I'd ever want to go there. And no, I don't ever want to be like them. And, and so they were actually speaking unkindly about ethnicities different from their own. And so they catch all of that on tape. And then they take the DNA test and then they bring them all back. And one by one, the interviewers sit them down and reveal that in more cases, often than not, when they looked at their DNA ancestry, they discovered that in their ancestry were some of the same ethnicities that they were prejudiced toward, that it was in them, that the people that they had a certain problem with, that was their forebears. And so DNA was there to kind of expose to them the dangers of their own prejudices, but also bring to light the fact that they owed some of their existence to those very kind of people. Surprise! It's what light does. It brings attention to what is a problem and brings attention to what is the way out. Now, so far, I have spoken of salt and light and what it does and how it acts in some pretty generically kind and good ways. And that's good, of, of universal application no matter where you come from or what you believe. But Jesus is not here to speak to us as if salt and light is a generic thing. It, it doesn't have a generic quality to it. There's actually something weightier to it. It has a quality, but it is also weighty because it involves glory. And the reason I say that is because if you were listening very carefully, when Jesus said something about salt and light, he didn't just say, you are salt, you are light. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's there in the Greek. And that's why we translated it to English. 
And Jesus is saying who you are as salt and light is something not just generically good or kind or sweet. It is actually pointing to something that is greater than you and actually the source from which it all comes. And so as you heard Mr. Ledford read from Isaiah 42, there are other places in that same passage that communicate to this idea of a unique sense in which you're the light of the world. He says in Isaiah 42 and 49, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. What? A light for the nations. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Who are the nations? Anybody that's not Jewish, which is a very large constituency. And he would say, Israel's purpose to be a presence in this world was to be a light for the nations. And that is not simply to say, here's a good idea and here's all the dangerous things. What he means by a light for the nations is to point them to the light who is the light. To show them who God is and how he is that source of light and how all light is ordered unto what he would have us do. This light has a name. This light has a story. And therefore he would call us to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your father who is in heaven. It's not a generic sort of goodness. It's very unique. And it's very profound. And it's got a weightiness to it and a glory. So let me put this in really practical terms. If there is somebody in your life who suffers from alcoholism... Just as an example, your first responsibility to them, if they are stone cold drunk, is not to tell them Jesus is Lord. Now you can, let me know how that goes. Your first responsibility is to go over to their house and empty their liquor cabinet. And then your second responsibility would be to help them connect with a community of support and solidarity and sympathy and accountability that they might begin to pull themselves out of that hole. And then your responsibilities maybe even begin to ask them the question, what is so burdening you that has led you to that kind of despair that would lead you to go find and medicate your way yourself in that way? All of those represent sort of that generic sense of being salt and being light, of preserving them and and showing them the way out of danger but at some point if the opportunity affords and they show themselves willing to even listen there may come a moment in which you have to say to them i want to tell you about this one in whom i have found refuge how he is the source of refuge for me such that when i am tempted to despair i run to him rather than to jack daniels this is the light this is the salt And it goes in that way. And therefore, this presence, which is our purpose, it does have a quality. And it is weighty. But it reaches so deep that it has something to do with our very identity. And I get that from, I guess, the straightforward reading of the text. He doesn't say, um, go be salt, uh, go be light. He says, you are salt. You are light. This is not your extracurricular activity. This is not your side job. You don't moonlight as being salt and light. This is your gig. This is your identity. This is where you go. And therefore you might say that our purpose, which is a presence, is being invited into a lifelong game of playing show and tell. I got to uh, preach at my kids' uh, chapel last Wednesday and uh, 
through the course of my little homily, I, asked, I had them uh, raise their hands to tell me what was the last thing that they brought to show and tell. And everybody's hand goes up, right? Like, nobody has to tell a kid, I want you to be excited about what you brought to show and tell. Um, like, you don't hear a kid say, this is my spider, it has eight legs, it once came into the bathroom when my mom was taking a shower and I learned a bunch of new words. Like, you don't have to coach them to be animated about what they're showing and telling. They just, all right, this is my thing. <laughs> Jesus has called us to a purpose of being involved in the path, the, the warp and woof of show and tell. And, and, and so uh, several weeks ago, I quoted to you a, a, an excerpt from a poem by Mary Oliver that I, I think left many of us with our head scratching. This one's a little bit more straightforward. It, it comes from a poem called Sometimes in which she says this, instructions for living a life, pay attention, be astonished, Tell about it. That's it. Hard, maybe, but not complicated. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. That's your purpose. That's what a presence does. And we would think, you know what? Good enough. Let's leave it at that. But Jesus doesn't. In fact, he devotes probably half of this passage, not simply to outlining the, the outline of our purpose he's actually to tell us about the challenges to it the way in which if we're to go out in this world and fulfill that outline of that purpose we're going to be met head on and i i don't think it's a coincidence that this passage comes right on the heels of what we talked about last week regarding rejection and persecution because if there is anything that might lead us to think about not acting as salt and light in this world is the belief that we're going to get hit with a two by four if we do which leads us with a very big challenge. Either go out and live in accordance with this purpose that is a presence and get rejected for it, or live with this frustration of having our identity severed from our purpose. You want to get bored? You want to live a life of boredom? Just show up here every Sunday and that's it. As F.D. Bruner puts it about this page, if you put salt one inch, inch away from meat it's worthless it's bored there are so many challenges to living out this purpose and we have to talk about it because if we don't address it there are so many ways in which we will say i i can't go there i don't want to go there especially in our day what's up what are we up against what are are the challenges to this purpose I have mentioned to you before a philosopher from Canada whose name is Charles Taylor, who says, at, at no other time in human history have people of any faith, regardless of religious tradition, have felt such f- so fragile in that faith. Because they realize that in any given setting, they may believe something, and then 80% of everybody else around them believes totally different from them. And they think, now, why do I hold to this? Why do I think this is true? Just being in a minority, even in North Carolina. And so there's all sorts of things that we contend with that are challenges to this purpose. Let me give you a few. One of which is just conventional thinking that will challenge your desire to do that. At some point, you're going to read an article or see an interview or see a film in which somebody's going to say in so many words, there is no absolute truth. It doesn't exist. 
which is an interesting sort of comment because they've just put down an absolute truth telling us that there's no absolute truths. Or somebody else will say, look, you believe what you want to believe, but please don't say that any one faith tradition has a greater access or is a better story to explain reality as it is than any others. You don't know. Nobody knows enough to say that any one faith tradition speaks most clearly and resonantly with matter of truth. And, and that's kind of based upon a parable that you're familiar with, right? The parable of the, the five blind dudes that are around an elephant. Uh, and they're all holding a different part of the elephant. And they're all telling us what the elephant is like. And the one holding the leg says, an elephant is uh, sturdy and thick like a tree, right? And the other one's holding an ear. And they say, no, an elephant is, is sort of um, uh, flappy and thin and waves in the wind. And the other one's holding the trunk. And they'll say, no, uh, an elephant is uh, flexible and ribbed. And it's got hairs on it. And it's just, that's what an elephant is. And the person that tells the parable says, that's, that's the way religion is. You're all looking through this with a blindfold and you're reaching out and you're saying you hold this part and you're saying that's the truth. And the parable says, see, nobody sees perfectly. But there's a problem with the parable. The one telling us the parable is the one who allegedly is sitting outside seeing that all of you are blind. And the question is, if he's saying that nobody else can see perfectly, then why does he think he can the premise is illogical. And it's a matter of time before people will say to you, don't ever proselytize about your faith. It's offensive. Barna just did a study um, over a wide uh, swath of Christians from a multiple demographics. And those who are in the 20 to 35-year-old range, which is, this is not throwing millennials under the bus, uh, that would be foolish. In fact, I would like to invest in millennials to no great end in the next year and 18 months. So if you fall in that category, get ready. An email is coming. But among that demographic, there is a preponderance of those who will say, it is wrong to share your faith in such a way that you would hope that the other one might share in your faith someday too. That it's not just they disagree with it or they might find it offensive. It's just that you actually shouldn't do it. Like, that would be wrong. That's necessarily judgmental to go there. And therefore, that's based on this premise. Don't proselytize anybody. But guess what? Anybody saying don't proselytize anybody, what are they doing? They're proselytizing. They're saying don't evangelize anybody. Well, then why are you talking? Because you're evangelizing me not to evangelize others. See, this is the conventional thinking that's out there that would lead you to think, I'm not going there. I'm not going to put myself out there because it. Look, there's a problem. You know another problem is? Church history. There are all sorts of reprehensible things in the history of the church that would make anybody outside of it go, why in the world would I give myself to a people like that? The amount of corruption that has followed the church, the amount of posturing and the alignment with power in order to preserve power, not because they believe in Jesus, but because they believe in power, the amount of narcissism that it's found its way into the pulpits of this world. Or just an example, the way in which gay people are spoken of as an abstraction, as if they have barely any humanity. All sorts of reasons why people would say, I am not going there. And yet you got to realize when people start calling out the church, you know what they're doing? They're actually smuggling in Jesus 
in order to condemn those who are allegedly following Jesus. And therefore, it's true. The church has acted reprehensibly, and yet it needs more of Jesus, not less. And so the whole posture kind of stands or falls on what will help. You know what? I think it would be what Jesus has for us. You know what the last challenge to this purpose is? It's the assumption that nobody would ever want to listen and has no interest in what is in which you take your refuge in. It's an assumption. Um, Penn and Teller, you might have heard of them. Famous comedians, magicians, they're still going at it after like 30 or 40 years. You may have seen this clip from about six or seven years ago. It's, it's Penn Jillette, the larger of the two, the one that talks. Teller doesn't talk. He tells a very candid account of what happened to him after one of his shows. When a Christian comes up to him after a show and has this exchange, and Pendulette felt compelled in that moment, before there were even video blogs, to record himself to explain what happened to him. And listen to what might answer your assumptions about whether people would be amazed by what people say. Listen. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we... Uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the, um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, uh, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and... Uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. He was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you." And he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice 
and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. Are you sure they wouldn't respect what you might have to share? Are you sure? Uh, some people are, to be sure. But of all the people that might have said, thanks, I'm going to, you know, security, just listens. I'm sitting in a coffee shop recently, and I have a book on my table. I'm drinking coffee. It's Faith Among the Faithless by Mike Cosper. And this guy sits down, and he says, can I look at your book? And I said, Sure. Guy in his 50s, struggling with a lot of things in relationships and future, and he's been thinking about faith and wondering what it means to be a man, and they just sort of struck up a conversation. And we, I just asked him a bunch of questions and learned about his life. And, you know, eventually we started talking about all that stuff that we kind of hold down and, and push down. And in his own words, he says, there's all this stuff in my life that I kind of want to press down and avoid, and I kind of, it's like I put it on my backpack and I just carry it. And we just talked about grace. We talked about forgiveness. This guy didn't ask about it. He just started talking and sharing his life with it. And it just happens. Don't, we're just talking over coffee. These are the challenges that we face in living out our life. And so what I've tried to do in this last point is just say there is a certain logic behind all of the reasons why you might be unwilling to go there. But logic isn't enough to lead you to fulfill this purpose. You need something else. You need strength. And where does that strength come from? It comes from the one who told you who you are. Because when he said to you, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's talking to you about an identity that he's given you long before you ever did anything to reflect that identity. 
That before you are salt and you are light, you are forgiven. That before you are salt and you are light, you are reconciled to God. That before you are salt and you are light, you are beloved of God. Full stop. And not because you were salt and light, but because in spite of the fact that you weren't. This is your identity because of what he did on your behalf. And this is why you might properly call him father. Not one who would abandon you in the middle of the night or speak unkindly, but as a father who loves to give, as a father who knows you are frail, as a father who knows you will bend if not buckle under pressure. This is your father and he is your father because of what his son did on your behalf. That's where the strength comes from. What does this mean for us? What do we do with that? First and foremost, it's not about a technique, friends. And it's not about a script. It's not about a set of talking points. It comes down to you seeking the beauty of Jesus. Because if that isn't true, then whatever you say is a pitch. It has to work its way down into us. Obedience to being salt and light is not about coming up with a script. It's about seeking to see Jesus as beautiful. And then as that becomes more true for you, you know what that means? Lent begins next week. The season of Lent, according to the Christian calendar, in which we soberly consider ourselves and we consider Jesus's path to his own destruction and his own resurrection on Easter. And, and people in past ages have used Lent to sort of give up something, of not do something. Whereas in truth, the, the spirit behind it is that you would devote yourself to something more important. Which means that you have to give, take away your devotion to other things that have kind of creeped in and like clutter in your life. Can I invite us all to consider a way of devoting ourselves during the 40 days of Lent? And that is this way. Seek the beauty of Jesus. And then be near those who are unlike you. Be kind to those who are unlike you. Be curious about those who are unlike you. And then, if the opportunity affords, be ready. Be ready to explain why is it that you've taken refuge in Jesus. I don't know if that'll come, but I sure know it won't happen without being near, being kind, being curious, About them. The last lines of Never Cry Wolf come from the researcher Tyler, and he says this I think over again my small adventures, my fears, those small ones that seemed so big for all the vital things I had to get and to reach. And yet there is only one great thing, the only thing. To live to see the great day that dawns and the light that fills the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And because he is that light, we might walk in his way and discover our purpose. And in that purpose, there is no boredom. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to Avoid the sense that we must run to prove ourselves courageous. Help us to avoid thinking that we must come up with some sort of technique or script or 
way of being that it all turns out to feel more like marketing than it is about sharing our deepest heart. I would ask only that you would help us to see your son as beautiful and that as we see him as beautiful, that we, like those disciples, would not miss an opportunity to speak well of that beauty should anyone be curious and desirous of that beauty. If there be anyone in this room this day that desires that, that has not yet desired it before, I pray that you would commend yourself to them and that they would walk into your embrace and know that by Jesus' blood, they may belong to you now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.